Good morning. Good morning. I like it that I have to cut you off. It's a good thing that you like talking to each other. That's a good thing. Good morning. We are still in the season of the Gospels. Uh, We're coming up on Lent, uh, which we'll talk about more in a couple weeks where we move into the Minor Prophets. But, But for now, we're still continuing through Jesus, the story of Jesus as it's told by Luke. Uh, He's on his way to Jerusalem um, for this last uh, great stand that we know is coming, right? And uh, Luke's telling these stories and sharing these teachings of Jesus to help us understand who Jesus is, the characteristics, what he's like, what's important to him. And then in the text we come to today, once again, in my opinion, he links two stories together uh, as a way of giving insight to both of them, and and the overall picture of who Jesus is. So we're going to read today Luke chapter 18. I'm going to read 31 to 43, and then we'll talk a little bit about the build-up to these two stories and also the implications of these two stories. Luke 18, starting in verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him, spit on him. They'll flog him and kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. And the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden for them, and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and when he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he called out, Jesus! Son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. Now, I'm hoping you get the sense, as at least the way I've been working through it, I'm hoping you get this, that Luke tells the stories he tells about Jesus and the teaching that he tells about Jesus very deliberately. He puts things in an order. And, and I think these two stories today are just continuing the flow of the text. He's, he's continuing to build. Luke consistently portrays certain aspects of Jesus in his actions and his teaching. And it's important that we get this thread because it's one of the things Luke is doing. Luke's going to go on after Lent and Holy Week. We'll go into Acts. He's going to continue the story of what Jesus is doing in the early church. So it's important that we understand who Luke is saying Jesus to be. And, and, and what we've seen thus far in Luke, and I've hit it every week, I feel sometimes like I'm just repeating the same ideas. Jesus' teachings and his actions draw a line. He's, he's, he's actually separating, he's not purposely separating people, but people are choosing to side for him, with him, or against him. It was most clearly drawn a couple weeks ago when we looked at the, the stories of the lost things in chapter 15, right? It started at the very beginning, and now when the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, 
the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. See, there's these two types of, there's people that are frustrated with Jesus, that are angry at him, that feel like he's, he's breaking everything that, that a religious Jewish rabbi should do. He's not doing it. And then there's these other people that are just drawn to him, congregating around him, following him. And throughout his public ministry, we see that the needy and the weak are welcomed over and over Just after the parable we talked about last week, the parable of the widow going to the judge to teach about persistence in prayer, we see two other stories that that say this exact same thing. The Pharisee and the tax collector go up to the temple to pray. Remember that one? It's just a little earlier in chapter 18. And the Pharisee stands up, you know, in a loud voice says, Oh God, I thank you that I'm faithful and not like that guy over there. Remember the story? And then the, 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 the tax collector stands at a far distance and he he, he bows and beats his breast and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You see that, the weak and needy, Jesus says the tax collector went home justified that day because the weak and needy are welcomed. The next story he talks about the little children. People were bringing their children and Jesus was welcoming them. To, and, and they were like, come on, Jesus, we've got more important things to do. And he's like, no, 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 bring the kids. The weak and the needy are always welcomed by Jesus but the powerful and the privileged resist. We've seen that. The religious teachers all the way through have been angry. They've been upset. They've been plotting ways to trick him. And even after the the parable of the two guys praying in the temple and the little children come to Jesus, the next story, the one just before this, is about the rich young ruler, the guy who's got got the world at his feet. He's got everything that he possibly needs, and yet he still wants to know, how can I be born again? How can I have eternal life? He's still missing something. And Jesus pushes him past where he wants to go. First, he says, well, what do you read? What's the law say? And he says, well, I've kept that forever. And Jesus says, okay, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he doesn't want to do that, does he? He's sad. Because why? Because he's powerful and he's privileged. And he, that's, a, that's a hard line to cross to give all that up. Luke's been drawing these lines all the way through from, from the very announcement of the birth to the shepherds. The weak and the needy are welcomed. The powerful and the privileged resist. And here in our text today, we see two stories shared together. He's putting these two stories together for a reason. The disciples' reaction to Jesus' words and the healing of the blind man are related. (laughs) No, No pun intended. If only we have the eyes to see it, right? The first story obviously contains some hard words for the disciples. We're going to Jerusalem And this is what's coming up. Look at what he says to the disciples. Everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. On the third day, he'll rise. Now, this is the third time in Luke Jesus has said the same kind of thing to the disciples. When we get to Jerusalem, it's all the wheels are going to fall off, guys. And every time he gets more specific. It's, it's, it's clear, more clearly drawn. He does it twice in Luke 9, if you want to check me out. He does it here. Now, we see these things. Handed over to the Gentiles, mocked, insulted, spit on, flogged, killed. The third day he'll rise again. It's pretty clear that Jesus, what he's intending for this visit to Jerusalem is not a weekend away in the big city, right? You know how you take it? Well, let's go to Vancouver for the weekend. This is not what he's talking about. It's clear and it's detailed. Now, I'm, I'm, 
I'm going to test your intelligence this morning. You ready for that? You had your coffee? Okay, I'm going to give you a word or a phrase, and if you understand what that word means, just raise your hand. It's really easy, okay? Handed over. What does that mean? You got, it's pretty simple, right? Mocked. How many of you know what it is to mock somebody? Yeah? Uh, insulted. Do you know what that is? Some of you are really good at that one, right? You practice every day. <laughs> spit on. How many of you know what it means to be spit on, right? Flogged. Flogged? Yeah, you got a general idea. Maybe there's different ways to do it. Killed. How many of you know what it means to be killed? This wasn't complicated. And yet in verse 34, what do you read? The disciples did not understand any of this. <laughs> its meaning was hidden from them. And they did not know what he was talking about. Right? Those are not, it's not a complicated, it's not like Jesus is reading Revelation to them and they're thinking, I don't know quite what that means. He's using very clear terms in a very clear place at a very clear time, and they don't seem to get it. <laughs> they, they're doing what we do. You, know, you ever had the news you don't want to hear? Little kids will go, no, 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 no. You know, I can't hear you, I can't, whatever. When we don't like the news we're being given, sometimes we just ignore it. We don't understand it. Now, these were hard words. <laughs> and then Luke moves right from that story into a story in Jericho about a blind beggar who believes. Just outside the city, as they're coming up to Jericho, this blind beggar hears the ruckus and asks what's happening. And they say, very clearly, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. The rabbi Jesus, the guy from Nazareth, he's passing by. And he calls out twice. The first time, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the second time, son of David, louder, have mercy on me. Now, the, the, the wording is important there because they told him it was Jesus of Nazareth, but he says, Jesus, son of David. It's a messianic title. This blind beggar gets that this is the Messiah coming by. And his words harken back to that first story of the tax collector and the Pharisee praying in the temple. Remember what the, the, the tax collector said? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That, it's bookending, this, this section. And you have these disciples hiding from a really difficult, hard truth. And you have the blind beggar stating the truth about Jesus and about himself, that he needed help and mercy. And when you see them set side by side, the irony is obvious. Yeah, the, the disciples, I, I, I get it. You know, we, when, when we have a perceived notion of the way things should be, it's hard for us to shake our preconceived ideas. You ever have that? I have that. I, I don't change gears easily. My wife has learned this about me. If I have something planned for my day, I can change gears, but I can't change it on the spot. When all of a sudden our plans change, she realizes, okay, Jeff, we're gonna, let, let's do this instead. And then she just leaves me alone for about five minutes because I may even like to do that thing better but it just takes me a while to let go of what I planned and take on something else. Maybe some, I see some wives talking to some husbands there. That's what, maybe that's what we do. I don't know. But I get it. You know, you have this preconceived idea of the way things are going to play out, and it's hard to let it go. But the irony of this situation is that the ones who, who should see don't. The ones who should see. The disciples have been following Jesus for three years by this time. Three times he's repeated this same story about what's going to happen to Jerusalem, to them, and they still don't get it. They don't have a clue as to what he's talking about. The ones who should see 
don't. And the one who can't see does. Isn't that interesting? The blind beggar gets it. He gets that Jesus, both that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is a man who needs the Messiah. He gets that really clearly. Putting the two together just magnifies this reality that Luke has been tracing, that there are people that get it and are drawn to Jesus, and there are people that don't get it and resist. The Messiah, the Messiah is turning everything on its head as he comes to bring the kingdom of God. Now the question is, why don't they get it? How come the disciples miss what the blind man sees? And it has to do with, with the struggle, I call it the struggle of familiarity and agenda. We tend to believe what we want to believe. We don't change our beliefs easily. We tend to hold ourselves. We think that what our perception of situations is correct. Part of that we do just as a coping strategy because I think we'd go crazy if we constantly second-guessed ourselves. But, but when we have an agenda or when we're really familiar with something, we think we have it. We see what we want to see. We tend to shift reality to meet our expectations. A really fascinating book called The Righteous Mind by a guy named Jonathan Haidt. Uh, and and he, he, he traces how people, a, a lot of what he's looking at is political ideology, but he says people tend to want to believe something first, and then they find reasons to support it. We want to convince ourselves that we've thought it through from both angles, but the reality is we really want to believe something, and we find things that support it. Really fascinating book. And the disciples had an expectation of what Jesus, the Messiah, would be doing in Jerusalem. And Jesus wasn't fitting that, so they just, I don't understand. Rather than say, we need to change our expectation, they don't understand. There's another story in John 9. I'm sure we don't have to turn to that, but I'll read part of it to you in a minute. There's a man who is blind, again, in John chapter 9. And the disciples, you may remember the question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that caused him to be born blind? See, they've already got a preconceived idea about this guy. And Jesus says, neither. Neither, neither happened, guys. This man was born blind so that the work of God might be displayed in his life, which is a whole new category for them. But then it continues, Jesus heals the guy. And then the, 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 the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the religious leaders get really mad because you know what Jesus did? He did it on the Sabbath. He just don't, that can't be right. Once again, they've got a preconceived idea. You can't heal on the Sabbath, that's breaking the law. So they call in the guy, and he's like, what do you mean? This guy healed me. I, I, don't, I don't know where he is. I don't know where he came, but, but I, I used to be blind. Do you hear that? And now I can see, and you're worried about him doing it on the Sabbath? So they kick him out, and they call his parents. Talk to his parents. His parents are scared to death. Well, all we know is he used to be blind. Now I can see. That's all we know. Leave us out of it. So they call him in again, and it says, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. Now listen. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. They know that. We know that. And then the blind man replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, now I can see. And they said, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he said, I've told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear again? Do you want to become his disciples too? I love that line. All right. And they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. 
The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this, the religious leaders replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Do you see that picture? They've got a decision already made, and the facts don't work with where they want to go, and it's extremely frustrating. The Pharisees had an idea, and Jesus didn't fit it. But rather than opening their mind to something different, they kept trying to get the truth to fit into their idea. And the disciples don't understand what Jesus is talking about in Jerusalem because it doesn't fit what they think Jesus should do in Jerusalem. They have an idea. They have a plan. I I made a little video for you. I'm going to give you another intelligence test. If you'll run that video, I, I just talked through it. I couldn't find one I liked online, so I made my own. So here we go. I want to give you a challenge today. You see these nine dots? With your finger, as you point to the screen or think in your mind, I want you to to connect them with four straight lines. Each line starts where the previous one ends, and I want those four lines to touch all nine dots. So let's, let's try it together here. What if we did this? Line two, line three, line four. Oh, but the sneaky one in the middle messed us up. Let's try another attempt. Line one, line two, line three. We're not going to miss that sneaky one in the middle this time. Oh, but that one at the bottom. Hmm. Well, how about this? Different approach. Line one, line two, line three, line four. Oh, still didn't get it. Why don't you take a second and just try it yourself? Now, some of you may have realized the answer already. Here it is. Line one, line two, line three, line four. Simple. You didn't tell me I could go outside the box, but did I ever say you couldn't go outside the box? Right? You, we all do that all the time. We impose restrictions on ourselves to control the way we think, that may not be actual restrictions. And far too often, we have ideas and plans and expectations for Jesus, the way he should do things, the way we think he'll do things, and it keeps us from seeing what he's actually doing. That's why throughout Luke, sorry, I'm getting a weird thing on my computer here. (laughs) I don't know how to get rid of it. Oh, well. There are times you have ways planned that your sermon will go, and they don't go that way. Now, I have my screen back again. I'm, I'm alive again. That's good. So let me get back to my point. We, we make these plans for Jesus. We may not even know that we make them. We may not consciously say, Jesus, I think you should do this, this, and this. But we have these ideas, just like the disciples had ideas. And that's why throughout Luke, it's so obvious that the religious people very often are missing the boat because they have expectations, they have ideas of what it's going to look like that Jesus doesn't fit. And it's the outcasts, the people who've 
not grown up thinking certain things about the Messiah, who are more open to Jesus as he is. And it should be a warning to all of us that come to a church building every Sunday or that watch online every Sunday that we have to be careful about our assumptions and our preconceived ideas about the way Jesus might want to do things. How can we live in a way having our eyes opened to the truth? How can we do that? How can we not be limited by our desire for Jesus? How can we have eyes to see? Well, there's some basic things, I think, that our text points to that can help us lay down what we think is supposed to happen and embrace what Jesus might actually be doing. It's it's not impossible, but it does take practice, I think. I think we have to be aware of our tendency to not understand what Jesus is doing. It says in in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Well, we have the Spirit. We have the ability to see and be open to what God's doing if we don't shut it down ourselves. Here's a few things I think that can help us hold loosely to our preconceived agenda agenda of what God's doing. First of all, let me take a drink because this is a big one. This is the most important one. We need to make sure we're living with a reality centered around Jesus. Now, I know that sounds simple, right? Of course, we center our lives around Jesus. But the point is, sometimes we don't, even though we say we do. Sometimes our lives, even though we speak that we're oriented around Jesus, we're following Jesus, we we have other things that orient our life. I have a brother who will remain nameless, but it's Beth's dad, Um, (laughs) and he does many things really well, but he is not good with a map. He gets lost. He gets, doesn't he? He's the worst. I I feel like he's been adopted in our family. My my other brother and I mock him. My sister, she's too kind to do that. But anyway, we were visiting my brother in Lebanon, Angela and I were, and we had gone up to this mountaintop thing to meet somebody, and as we were coming back down, it was a really weird road, lots of turns, And it was really confusing, and Mike was using his GPS while his wife was driving. He was like, oh, turn here, I think. Oh, and then we'd turn, and he's like, no, that wasn't right. That wasn't. I'm like, how hard is it? You're holding your GPS in your hand. So I said, let me see it. So I took it, and I realized what happened was whenever we turned, the GPS didn't turn with it, so you actually have to turn the GPS to be oriented correctly, right? He was holding it this way the whole time, and then we turned this way, it, it didn't work for him because it, it said make a right turn, and it was actually a left turn. If he had turned the whole unit to see the direction we were actually going, if he had oriented himself properly, it would have been easy to see. And so we got down the mountain thanks to me. We would still be on that mountain today <laughs> if it wasn't for me. Um, but, but my point is, I hope he doesn't listen to this, um, the way we navigate our lives has to be oriented correctly to the true Reality, the center of which is Jesus. And the kingdom vision is that all of life is oriented around Jesus, that he is the king, that he is the ruler, that he is all-powerful, that he never fails. Right? That has to be the central truth that everything else in our life revolves around. It, it's clear in Colossians 1. Just listen, this is a pretty... Astounding passage describing Jesus. 
The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on, heaven, on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That passage centers Jesus not just at the center of my life, but at the center of reality. It was made by him, it was made for him, it holds together through him, and one day he will reconcile all things to himself through his bloodshed on the cross. It, there is no, if the disciples had gotten this, they wouldn't be second-guessing, no, Jesus, I don't know what you're talking about, spit, flogged, because he's the guy driving the whole bus. We, we have to begin to live our lives oriented around the reality that Jesus really is the central piece of, of all things. And that his victory has taken care of everything. And there's no way we can ever lose as we are with him. Now, I know it doesn't always look that way. In Hebrews 2.8, it says that in putting everything under him, Jesus, God left nothing that is not subject to him, yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. That is the truest Bible verse I've ever read, I think. Jesus is the center of reality, but we don't always see it. Wow, that's interesting that we're talking about seeing today. All right? The truth is that the disciples, while calling Jesus the Messiah, still had life centered around what they wanted the Messiah to be for them. And the blind beggar knew Jesus was the Messiah, and yes, he wanted things from the Messiah, but he was very clear on where he fit into the process. And as we live each day, let me just be really blunt, we have to be oriented to reality, realizing that the one who holds the whole thing together is Jesus, and he is on our side. Okay? The, the pastor is not orienting your reality, I hope. Right? Justin Trudeau, I hope, is not orient your, orienting your reality, or any political leader, for that matter. I hope that the, the, the key to your success or your freedom is not Dr. Fauci in the United States. Right? We've got to stop taking our cues from the reality that the world wants to present. We've got to stop. Because the scripture is really clear that it all centers around Jesus and that he will reconcile all things to himself through his blood shed on the cross. He will not fail. That's why it says, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. All I see in our culture today is fear, fear, fear. Fear of the other side. They're taking this away from me. They're going to take this away from me. We cannot live life from that vantage point. It blinds us to the truth. Jesus is a central hinge pin around which everything else revolves, and only when you start to see reality from that perspective will you ever find rest and peace. <laughs> You'll realize that everything we spend so much time watching on the news or on Facebook or on YouTube is not what's determining the future of reality. Because that stuff will fire you up, and it will keep you awake at night. 
And this starts with this, this understanding of Jesus as the central pen of all of reality. It starts with a desire and a willingness to see. The disciples in verse 34 really didn't want to understand. It says it was kept from them. I don't know if, if that means that Jesus hadn't given them enough insight at that point. I don't know what that means exactly. But whatever it was, it did not fit their model of Messiah. They didn't want to see that Jesus was going to be mocked and beaten and spit on and flogged and killed. And because they couldn't see that, they couldn't see that he would rise again on the third day either. Do you see how not seeing the truth of what Jesus is saying misses you to the greatest truth of what Jesus is saying? They didn't get any of it. The disciples didn't want to, you have to be willing to see. You have to desire to see. In Ezekiel 12, God tells Ezekiel, Son of man, you are living among a rebellious people. They have eyes to see, but they do not see, and ears to hear, but they do not hear. They are a rebellious people. And you know what? We, I've heard this verse quoted, but typically it's quoted, and maybe I'm doing the same thing, so you can let the Spirit teach you about this. Typically it's quoted because people don't see what you want them to see. So they're being rebellious against what you want them to see. But what God is saying is here, people, we've got to have an openness and a willingness to see beyond what we want. The heart of seeing involves a willingness. Helen Keller, that great quote, there are none so blind as those who refuse to see. Those who refuse to see. In Matthew 13, Jesus says, this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Now, that's the disciples. They're refusing to see. In contrast to this is the blind man. I, I love this picture, because you know what? Jesus, Jesus knows stuff, and he's no dummy, right? He sees a blind man calling to him. He probably knows what the blind man wants, wouldn't you think? But what does he say in verse 41? What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Isn't that fascinating? Do you want to see? He, he, he puts it back on the blind man. The blind man says, Lord, I want to see. There's a desire to see. Right? The disciples don't want to see yet. But they don't, and, and they're going to see eventually, but it's going to take a while. The blind man wants to see. What kept the disciples from this desire and this willingness to see? Well, the blinders of status and power and control, the fear of losing something. They couldn't see how their vision for the Messiah could ever play out with words Jesus was saying. And they were afraid to entertain this idea of a Messiah who dies, because where does that leave us? Right now, we are the 12. We are the chosen disciples of the Messiah. We're on our way to Jerusalem at Passover. This is going to be the time. And because they have these blinders of status and power and control, they can't see. Just like those guys back in John chapter 9, the Pharisees who couldn't see how Jesus could be the Son of God after healing a blind man on the Sabbath. They had status, they had power, they had control. And before you think, well, that's not me, let me tell you, if you live in North America, you've got more status than the majority of the world. Way more power over your life and control than most of the world. You can make decisions about what you want to eat and where you want to go. But when we're afraid to lose that power and control, we, we, we don't see what Jesus is calling us to. And let me tell you, Jesus will, he will strip away those blinders if you're willing to let him do that. 
He will strip away what you think you must have to give you what you need most. And it's not always fun, is it? But it's vital. Just ask Paul, riding on the road to Damascus, (laughs) going to kill the Christians. And guess what? He's blinded. And once he's blinded, he can see who Jesus is, really, because he's lost status, power, and control. The key to the spiritual life is our own self-sufficiency has to die. We have to stop depending on what we want and what we think we need. Church in Laodicea, in Revelation 3.17, the Spirit writes, You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. See, the spiritual journey is one of descent. If we're going to grow, we actually need to descend. In order to have open hands to what Jesus wants to give us, we have to let go of the things that we're clutching so tightly. That's the best picture for me ever. Sometimes when I pray, I just open my hands because I realize I want this. And sometimes it takes me a while to say, okay, if that's not... There's something powerful about these physical symbols of opening our hands. See, spiritual life is not about getting to a place of self-sufficiency where I can take care of myself. It's It's a place of surrender. It's adopting a posture of humility. That famous passage about Jesus in Philippians 2, right? Who being in very nature, just look at this, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, and so he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on the cross. You see Jesus, and he says, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Jesus is stepping down, 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 down. Down, adopting a posture of humility. Micah 6, 8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. See, when, when we get down here where we're supposed to be, when we realize, have mercy on me, O God, have mercy. All of a sudden, we're way more open to what God might be doing. We're, we're way more aware that we don't have it all figured out. We're way less willing to prove that we're right and somebody else is wrong about certain things. We're way less willing to elevate ourselves over others when we realize that we are the people who need to be saying, have mercy. And then we realize at that point, our only hope is Jesus, not new laws not less mandates, not a new political party. We need Jesus to lead us. That's, that's the bottom line. And, and as we lead, as we follow his lead, we, start, we need to start reflecting his life, living the same way he lived. So much of what passes for Christianity out there, it seems like, I don't know, people just trying to be powerful and control and put down the other and take charge. <laughs> I just don't see Jesus doing that. He offered his life as a sacrifice. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. That, that's the place of spiritual success. A place where you begin to see clearly, where you can start to find wisdom and follow. A couple weeks from now, we'll read Psalm 25. And Psalm 25, 9 says this, He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. You want to see? Adopt that posture of humility. The, the reason you've got to start with realizing Reality centered around Jesus is because it's too scary to adopt a posture of humility unless there's somebody you trust driving the bus. When you get that Jesus has got this thing, 
You can let go of all your power and status and control because he'll take care of you. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. He's always done this. He always will. He's the one who holds all things together, the one who's reconciling the whole world to himself. And if you want to see that clearly, it starts by descending into humility, not grasping for greater power and control. That's the calling. That's the line I think Luke's been drawing through the whole book. There are people who realize their need that see Jesus clearly. There are people who have an agenda for him that miss the boat. The question is, where will you be? Let's pray. God, I love these stories. I love this blind man that you just say, what do you want me to do for you? And God, we, <laughs> we want you to help us see today you. We want you to help us see what Christianity, what, what faith looks like lived out in Hope, British Columbia, following your way. We want to see the way you love people here the way that you love them despite things they've done or said or despite ways they might disagree with us. Open our eyes so that we can see. Guide us in your truth. Lord, humble us. Do it gently, if at all possible. But humble us so that we can have our eyes open to see who you are and rest in that until you bring us home. In Jesus' name, amen.